All right, let's bow our head in uh, our heads and ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Father, thank you. Thank you for this privilege that we have to gather together to get to know you better. Thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that we can meet with you today through your word. And Father, as we open it this morning, we pray that the cares of this week would be dismissed from our minds. And that your spirit would take full control over our minds and our hearts. That we might give our undivided attention to you today that there would be absolutely nothing that clouds our vision of what you have for us from this very critical passage of your holy word. And Father, we pray that every one of us knows the nearness of the abiding presence of the Lord Jesus. You alone know, of course, the state of our hearts this morning. Some of us might have come here with our lives full of troubles and and fears and heartaches and, and unrest. Some may be even battered and beaten down. You know all the causes. And we know that none of this is apart from your sovereign superintendence, that all of it, whatever we are going through, has been ordered by your hand and somehow intended for your glory and our ultimate good. You know how easily, Lord, we can lose sight of, of this and how sometimes it's almost impossible for us to, to cling to your promises and believe these things. So may we know this morning what it is to have our spirits calmed because so often we find ourselves in the same state of mind that we read about in the apostles, how often they were, they were perplexed and confused and, and dismayed and staggered by the things that happened, things they had not anticipated things that were a great strain to their faith. Provide for us this morning words that will nourish a renewed faith in our hearts. And then, Father, use us to strengthen and help others in their own struggles so that they would not let their hearts be troubled. And now we pray for the instruction of the Holy Spirit to our hearts, and we lift these petitions up to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, we are on the last lesson of book number six, and it is lesson 152 called what? It's the promised peace. We're going to be looking at verses 22 to 31. We're going to end this morning the words that Jesus spoke to his men while they were still in the confines of the upper room. But his discourse will continue. He's going to leave the upper room when we finish today's lesson. But as we know, in chapters 15 and 16, he gives them a lot of instructions. So the discourse continues. Um, And then he prays in chapter 17. But after this last section of chapter 14, he and his men depart from the upper room and they begin their walk to where? Anybody know? Where do they walk to? The garden of Gethsemane. So what I want to do this morning is begin by reading the entire passage for our study and then we're going to break it down into the various divisions you see there for our outline. So let's look at the whole passage, John 14, starting at verse 22, when the Lord is again interrupted by another apostle. So let's look at verse 22. It says, Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot. Remember, Judas Iscariot is gone, isn't he? So this is another apostle named Judas. He says to the Lord, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? 
Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. Verse 26, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. And then verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye loved me, ye would rejoice, because I said I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it come to pass, that when it is come to pass, ye might believe. Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. That's the clue that they left the upper room. Arise, let us go hence. Well, when we look back at the Lord's words of verse 21, where he said, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. We understand why he was asked by yet another disciple in verse 22 um, a question. If you go back now and count, and we'll talk about that question in a minute, but if you go back and count, the Lord has been interrupted since he began this discourse so far before Judas, not Iscariot, he's been interrupted four times. Twice he was interrupted by Peter in verse 36 and then again in verse 37. Another time he was interrupted by Thomas. And a third time he was interrupted by Philip. Very good. And now in verse 22, we find that it was Judas, not Iscariot, who interrupted the Lord with his question, Lord, how is it that thou will manifest thyself to us and not unto the world? Now, do you know this is the only time in the entire New Testament that we hear from this man? The only time we hear any words from the apostle Judas, not Iscariot. That's just interesting. This Judas, like with all the disciples, had just heard Jesus say that he was going to manifest himself to them um, and take it in context to all those who loved him and prove their love by their obedience to him, which would include you and I, that he was going to manifest himself to believers. Um, and But Judas's perplexity was over the fact that he then went on to say that he would not manifest himself to the world. The Messiah was going to establish a kingdom on earth, right? Isn't that what that, why the Jewish people waited for a Messiah to come? Because when he came, he was going to set up a kingdom. And he would rule from Jerusalem. So you can understand his perplexity because he would think to himself, well, how could he do this? How could he set up a kingdom as the promised Messiah without the world seeing him? How could he not manifest himself to the world? And to now hear that there would be no public display of Jesus. Remember what the Lord had said back in verse 19? Look at verse 19. He had said, yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. This bothers 
the disciples. And the time, this time, the spokesperson for all of them is this not the betrayer, Judas. And uh, so they thought, how in the world could Jesus ever establish his kingdom on earth without a manifestation of himself to the world? And if we were in their sandals, we could understand their perplexity, right? You and I would be confused, too. Now, as we know, at this time in their lives, before the great enlightenment came upon them with the Holy Spirit, the apostles were still very, very confused about so much of what the Lord had been telling them this particular evening. They seemed to get it. They seemed to grasp the fact that he was indeed going away. And even though he continued to speak of his death, they also now heard his promise to return. Remember in verse 3 where he said he would return. So they knew he was going away, but he had promised to return. That's the first time they ever heard him promise to return. What they did not know was that there was to be a span of some 2,000 years between the time he was going away and he would return. And we know that they expected him to actually you know, go away and return right away. We know this because what was their very last question to the Lord as he's ascending up into the clouds of heaven and they're down there on the earth, what do they ask him? They say, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? So they're expecting him to go up and come right back down and set up the kingdom. They didn't have any idea that there would be the 2,000 you know, years of the church age in between. And so they're anticipating an almost immediate return. Whether people loved him or not, Thaddeus did not understand why the world would not see Jesus taking his right position. And now everybody's saying, did you just say Thaddeus? I thought his name was Judas, not Iscariot. Well, the reason I called Judas, not Iscariot, by the name of Thaddeus is because this is how he is referred to over in Matthew 10, 3, and also in Mark 3, 18. He's actually, in both of those passages, called Lebaeus, surnamed Thaddeus. Wow, this guy's got a lot of names. <laughs> in fact, Jerome, one of the early church writers, uh, fathers, called Judas, not Iscarius, Trinomius. And the reason for that is because in Greek, you know, Trinity, Trin, means three. Uh, Onoma is name. Trin, Trinomius means three names. He called him Trinomius because this guy's got three names. Judas, not Iscariot, Labaius, and Thaddeus. Now, in, it's interesting that in, in Greek, Thaddeus actually means breast child. He, so they, they um, we don't know a whole lot about this apostle, but they, they imagine that because he has that nickname, Thaddeus, that he was probably the youngest of many children. He was his mom. He, it's another way of saying mama's boy. He was a mama's boy. <laughs> he was the breast child of all her children. And um, they surmised that he probably was very tender-hearted, and that's how he got this name. And actually, Labaius is the same has the same meaning in Hebrew. Thaddeus is Greek for breast child, Labaius is Hebrew and it means heart child. So they figured that this man was probably very tender hearted. He was a sweet spirited mama's boy. He was gentle. And that's 
you know, that's what they're getting from his name. But anyway, that's about all we know. Oh, over in Luke 6, 16, he's also called Judas, the brother of James, the son of Alphaeus. Now, <laughs> things really get interesting. We don't know a whole lot about a lot of the apostles. We know more about some of them, but others of them we know very little about. But think of this. He is a brother of James. That happens to be James the Less. There was James the Greater, who was the the head of the Jerusalem church, who was the first one to be martyred. You know, one of the sons of Zebedee, John and James. He was called James the Greater, and then there was a James the Lesser. Well, this Judas Thaddeus Labaius was a brother of James the Less, and their father was Alphaeus. Well, John the MacArthur and others in their commentary speculate that because Levi, whose name was changed to Matthew, was also a son of Alphaeus, that it is very possible that Matthew and James the Less were brothers. And if they were, then that also means that Judas, not Iscariot, Thaddeus, Labaius was a brother, and their father Alpheus could have had another name named Clopas, and he could have been the husband of Mary, which was a sister of Mary, and that means that these guys could have been Jesus' cousins. Did you get that? <laughs> See, you thought you guys were complicated. <laughs> anyway, most ancient records do refer to this Judas, not Iscariot, as Thaddeus. And as you can imagine, don't you know that the guy dropped his name, Judas, as soon as the betrayer by that same name was known? If your name was Judas and you were an apostle, all of a sudden you'd say, you know, everywhere you go, I'm Judas, but I'm not the apostle that was the betrayer. So he just stopped using that name, Judas, and he, he stuck with the little nickname, um, Breast Child. <laughs> Um, one, one of the things we know for sure about this man is that he definitely was one of the 12 originally chosen apostles. And he's always mentioned in the last of the four groups of the apostles. He's always mentioned along with Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot. It is believed that he was clubbed to death. His symbol, they have little symbols for all the apostles, and his symbol is a club. And tradition says that he was clubbed to death for his faith. Um, also tradition, now this is, you know, we can't be dogmatic about what tradition says, but it is believed that he was sent to minister the gospel in Syria and that he is buried somewhere in Beirut, Lebanon. And whether that's true or not, only the Lord knows. Well, the Lord was, as always, infinitely patient with his men, as we've seen by his responses to the other questions. Lord, where are you going? And why can't we follow you there? And uh, we don't know where you're going, and we don't know the way to which you are going. And Lord, just give us a glimpse of the Father, and it sufficeth us. And now he's asked how he can manifest himself to his own and not to the world. As he had done with those other questions, he answers Thaddeus, even though he knew that none of them would really get it <laughs> when he gave them the answer. Remember what he said in verse 20? He said, that, you know, they wouldn't get it until that day. Speaking of what day? The day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit would enlighten them. But anyway, he goes on, verse 23, to answer the question, and he says, If a man love me, that's talking about a believer, he will keep my words. Notice the word words. And my father will love him, and we, we, 
My father and I, we will come unto him and make our abode with him. What's that word abode? Dwelling place, abiding place. It's the exact same word we saw up in verse 2, many mansions. Now, it wouldn't make sense to say we will make our mansion with him, would it? That word literally means our abiding places. We'll make our abiding place with him. And he says, he that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings. And the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father which sent me. The manifestation of himself to those who loved him and proved their love by their obedience was to be a spiritual manifestation. You know what the Greek word for manifestation is? See if you can hear something in the English that sounds like it. Manifesto. No, that's your Latin coming out. <laughs> the word is fenero. Fenero. It's like phantom fenero. And it means that it speaks of a mystery now revealed. Jesus' presence is revealed. It is illuminated. It is quickened in the lives of believers. He discloses to believers his person, his nature, his goodness. Where? Within our hearts and within our minds. He would reveal both himself and the Father to the spiritual eyes and the hearts and souls of those who truly love him. They are the only ones who would be enlightened by the spirit of truth to see the person of Christ for who he is. And who is he? The son of the living God. If you know that and you believe that and you see that, then you have been, he has been manifested to you. You see with spiritual eyes. You see with eyes of faith. Remember what we read last week in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that the unsaved world of men has no capacity to understand that because they have no spiritual discernment. Why? Because the world cannot receive the spirit of truth unless they put their faith in Christ. Well, in verse 23, the Lord told us men that not only did God the Father love those who love and obey His Son. Isn't that true? Parents, mothers, grandmothers, don't you love those who love your sons and daughters? Of course you do. So He loves those who love His Son and obey His Son. But incredibly, Jesus went on to say that both God the Father and God the Son make their abode within the genuine believer. It's precisely what he says. If a man love me, keep my words, my father will love him, and we will come into him, unto him and make our abode. Now remember, they had just previously heard that the Holy Spirit would dwell within them in verse 17. And now here's a promise that the other two members of the Godhead would come and abide with them. Now, in the Old Testament days, where did God dwell? How did, when he dwelled, dwelt with men? In them? No, in the temple, you know, in the Holy of Holies, above the Ark of the Covenant. But now, believers are to be the temple of God. You know, abiding speaks of fellowship. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit would abide, have fellowship within the believer. Believers have eternal fellowship with God. On the other hand, those who have no love for Christ, proven by their disinterest in keeping his sayings, they have no fellowship with God or with his Spirit or with his Son. And this, then, is why the world will not be able to see, is not able to see a manifestation of Christ. Now, did you notice when I read the passage several times, I emphasized certain 
differences in the Lord's use of words when he talked about the obedience of believers as opposed to the disobedience of unbelievers. When he spoke of a believer's demonstration of love for him, he said he will keep my what? Words. A believer will keep the Lord's words. But when he spoke about unbelievers, what did he say? He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings. Now we know nothing is by coincidence. He purposely used different words. The difference is that true believers understand the importance of what Jesus said right down to the specific words, right? That's why it takes us so long when we do our studies because we look at every word. Every word is important, every jot and tittle. We know that everything he said, and this is what he says in verse uh, 24, that everything he said was given to him to say by God his Father. Believers understand that the words of Jesus Christ are the very word of God. And that's quite a difference from the world, you see. The, the world may admit to commending and to admiring some of the sayings of Jesus, right? They pick and choose which ones they like. Like they'll commend and say that the Sermon on the Mount was wonderful and, and, and admit that, and it is, it's fantastic. But they will never get to the point of admiring uh, so that they obey him down to his very specific words, right? Fact is, they don't really even keep his sayings, do they? They might admire them, but they don't really even keep his sayings. Admiration or, or not, they don't keep them. They cannot keep them because they have no divine power within them to keep not only his sayings, but... I mean, not only his words, but they don't even have the power to keep his sayings. So that's an interesting difference there. All right. Well, the Lord will not again be interrupted until we get to the 17th verse of chapter 16. So we go all the way through chapter 15 with no interruptions. That'll be interesting. So so he continues on with his words of comfort. Now, he's already, if you go back and count, he's already given them eight promises um, when you count the two that he gave up in verses 2 and 3. So let's review, in case you forgot what the eight promises he's given, comforting promises that he's given so far. Some of you weren't with us, so it won't hurt to review these. He gave, first of all, in verse 2, the promise of abiding places. My departure, he says, will only be temporary. I'm leaving, but it is in order to prepare abiding places for you. Second promise of personal attendance. Verse 3, he says, I will personally attend to you at my return because I will come to escort you to those prepared abiding places that I am now making for you in my Father's house. So abiding places and personal attendance. Then we have the promise of amplified performance in verse 2. He told them because he was going away, they would be able to do even greater works than he had done while on earth. Then there's the promise of answered prayer in verses 13 and 14. He was telling them, I will only be a prayer away, and I will do whatsoever you ask in my name. And then there's the, the promise of another paraclete, verses 15 and 16. The great promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the promise of abiding presence, verses 16 to 18. The Lord's promise that the Holy Spirit would abide Within the believer, with the believer, for how long? Forever, forever. 
Then there's the promise of assured perpetuation. You notice these are all A's and P's? <laughs> assured perpetuation, verse 19, the promise of the Lord's undying life for the believer. He said, because I live, ye shall live also. And eighth, there is the promise of astonishing position. Verses 20 and 21, where the Lord not only spoke of the abiding union which believers have with the Holy Trinity, but of the special manifestation of himself that would be revealed to those who truly love him. So, abiding places, personal attendance, amplified performance, answered prayer, another paraclete, abiding presence, assured perpetuation, and astonishing position. Now, knowing, of course, that as long as he was still with them... The Holy Spirit was not within them to clarify his words and bring the blessed lasting comfort that they needed at this time. He went on to tell his men that uh, why he even bothered telling them these things in the first place, because he knew they wouldn't understand them. So why did he tell them all these things? Well, he spoke them because he knew that when the spirit did come, he would recall these words to their memories and he the spirit would teach them exactly what he had been saying it would all click right they would get it and some of them like Matthew John and Peter would write it all down and all of them would receive his supernatural peace and that what is what he says to them in the next verses as he tells them two more glorious promises. And I had to stick with my A's and P's. So these are the promises of aided preaching and pens and the promise of abnormal peace. But now, remember, they're still very, very perplexed. And as they're sitting there around the Passover table, they their faces probably still looked not comforted at all so jesus spoke the words of verses 25 and 26 let's look at those verses he says these things i have spoken unto you being yet present with you but the comforter which is the holy ghost whom the father will send in my name he shall teach you all things that's what i just told you and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever i have said to you He again told them that the Holy Spirit was going to be sent for their benefit by who? Going to be sent by the Father, but the Holy Spirit was coming in whose name? In in Christ's name. He's sent by the Spirit, but he's coming in Christ's name. Now, to come in one's name is to come in their stead, to come in their place. When we send over an ambassador to another country, he's there in the place of our country, right? He's representing our nation. Uh, Jesus had come in the place of his father, right? He had come in the place of his father, pointing to his father, revealing his father, and telling people how to come to his father. And now he's saying that just as he, Jesus, did not carry on his ministry independently of his father, neither would the Holy Spirit carry on his ministry independent of Jesus, of Christ. The Spirit would come into the world in the place of who? In the place of Christ. Christ came in the place of his Father. The Spirit would come in the place of Christ. And he would come pointing to Christ and revealing Christ and drawing people to Christ for salvation. 
as was true of Jesus concerning his father, so too the spirit receives nothing of himself and he seeks no glory for himself. Christ didn't want the glory when he was here. He always wanted the glory for his father. The spirit's only desire is to make manifest the glory of Jesus Christ. So I'm saying that so that you can be wary of those ministries that place their primary emphasis on the Holy Spirit and glorify him more than they do Jesus Christ. Are there ministries out there that do that? Oh, yes, plenty of them. They elevate the Holy Spirit more than they elevate the Lord Jesus. They're always talking about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. This grieves the Spirit. He is here in the name of Christ, in the stead of Christ. His desire and his purpose is to glorify and magnify the Lord Jesus, not himself. Now, okay, saying that, on the other hand, I have to also say be careful about ministries that minimize the work of the Spirit. They're not grieving him, they're quenching him. And you know, we can do both. You know what grieving the Spirit is? It's to do what you should not do. Then you grieve the Spirit. But to quench Him is to do what you sh- to not do what you should do. You get that? <laughs> grieve, to grieve Him is to do what you should not do. To quench Him is to not do what you should do. And we have to, you know, balance. We have to have that middle ground as in everything. Well, from the Lord's words of verse 26, we also find that the Spirit's role is that of teacher. He shall teach you all things. And the Spirit would function in a very unique way to the apostles in that he would enable some of those special men um, and others like John Mark and Luke and James, the brother of the Lord, and Jude, and of course the apostle Paul, to supernaturally... Uh, record and recall, some of them recall and record the words spoken to them by the Lord during his years with them. This was very, very, very important because a critical part of the Holy Spirit's duty was to ensure that the words recorded in the New Testament scriptures were precise and were perfect. That's part of the Holy Spirit's work. When he, you know, was inspiring men to write it, that the words were perfect and precise. The Spirit not only recalled to the apostles' minds the words Jesus had spoken, which were then preached by, you know, not all the apostles wrote books in the New Testament. Actually, only three of them did. But the others were inspired by the Holy Spirit to go out and preach the exact words that they had heard Jesus say, right? And they had to have those words miraculously recalled to their minds so that they would be precise in what they said. and um, But the Spirit also interpreted those truths that had been beyond their comprehension when they first heard them. So his, his work is to comfort, his work is to recall, his work is was to make sure that the scriptures were, you know, God-breathed and inspired, and then to interpret the scriptures. And there's a whole lot more, but I don't have time or I'll never get through this critical passage of Scripture. But go home and read your notes on this um, because we have to move on or we won't get through verse 31. I want to move on to look at the Lord's promise of abnormal peace. Okay, starting in verse 27, where he said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled. Where did we hear that before? 
That's how he started out this whole passage, isn't it? In verse 14, chapter 14, verse 1, he says it again. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And then he goes on from there, talking about the promise of abnormal peace. Have you noticed that the world does not know peace at all? Have any of you flicked on the television lately and looked at the news? Of course, you could do it any day of the year, and it would be the same thing. It just... A whole lot is going on right now in Egypt, which is affecting people all over the world. But the world knows nothing about peace at all. There's always nations fighting against nations, um, nations fighting within nations. There are sex wars, there are race wars, there are religious wars, political wars, moral laws, wars, um, border wars, drug wars, crime wars, you name it, wars going on everywhere. In fact, man is not even at peace in the confines of his own home, is he? Uh, families are shattered and they are torn apart today as never before. So, isn't it comforting to find that the final and the tenth promise... Now, these are not the Ten Commandments. You know what I call these? The Ten Comforts of the comfort chapter of the Bible. John 14 is the comfort chapter of the Bible. These are the Ten Comforts, not the Ten Commandments. But isn't it wonderful to find that the tenth one um, is the promise of abnormal peace. I need that kind of peace. I need supernatural peace. Not peace as the world gives. No, thank you. Um, the peace of the world is just wishful peace. And and it's, it's temporary. It's never permanent. There's never, you know, that peace treaty that was signed between Egypt and Israel. Um, what was it? How many years ago? 30 years ago? Did How many of you thought that that would last forever? No peace treaty, treaty has ever lasted forever. We knew eventually it would be broken. Um, peace treaties are always broken. The, the peace that is uh, real and eternal only comes from Jesus Christ. It's, it, it only can be found in Him. The inner rest of the soul that all men seek. And everyone wants to be at peace. Isn't that what it says in the latter days that Israel will be saying peace, peace? There's one thing Israel would love to have. It's peace. And every person wants inner peace of the soul. Uh, one tribe, I think I've got this in your notes, some tribe, Indian tribe in Ecuador, calls peace a sitting down in one's heart. And I thought that's a good way to describe it. Don't we all want that sitting down in our hearts? Uh, but only true believers in Christ can find that kind of peace. It is, when you think about the context of, of these words, it's interesting, it's astounding that just hours before his own agonizing suffering, and his impending death, which he knew about. You know, we can maybe have peace if we don't know that our death is going to be in the next 24 hours. But he knew it, didn't he? He knew everything he would suffer, everything he would go through. And yet, he gives us, at that time, the most comforting discourse on peace in all of the Bible. How could he do that in the face of such grueling circumstances? How could he get, you know, how could his focus be on others and comforting them and giving them these ten comforts when he knew what was ahead of him? Well, he could do it because he is the prince of peace, isn't he? He's the prince of peace. When it came to having inner peace and that sitting down in one's heart, Jesus knew exactly what he was talking about. He, he practiced what he preached. Now, the Greek word for peace, and this isn't in your notes, but it's erini. 
It's actually the second part of my name. My name in Greek is Ekaterini. Now, the first part uh, comes from the word like catarize, Catherine. It means pure. <laughs> and the last part, Irini, Ekaterini, means peace. So my name in Greek means pure peace. Oh, that's me, right, Connie? <laughs> oh, I wish. <laughs> but Irini means to bind together to join, to weave together, to reconcile. Erini is a good word because peace, if you think about it, peace is always born out of reconciliation. Peace always has to do with relationships. A man's relationship first and foremost with God, a man's relationship with his fellow man, and a man's relationship with himself. He must be bound. He must be joined together. He must be woven together in these three areas in order to have peace. Without peace with God, man cannot have peace with others. And he certainly, you know, without peace with God within him, he has that ever-present sense of guilt that he carries and you know the God-shaped vacuum that he senses in his soul so he has no peace within himself without peace with God you can't have peace with your fellow man you can't love your neighbor as yourself you can't even love and bless and pray for your enemies it's impossible without having peace with God and you sure don't have peace within yourself man without God uh, carries within him that ever-present overshadowing of fear about the unknown and the dread of what tomorrow or eternity might bring. But if I am in so, so much harmony or so bound together with God and with others and with myself, then I can have heart peace. I can have conquest peace. Conquest over my circumstances. I can have assurance peace. And I can have intimacy peace. These aspects of Erini Christ-like peace. You know, we always talk about agape love. We should talk about Erini peace. <laughs> These aspects of peace are much, much different than the kinds of peace that the world provides. Which we could call such things as escapism peace. Or avoidance of trouble peace. Or stick your head in the sand peace. <laughs> or denial of reality peace. Or positive thinking peace. Or temporary peace via satisfaction of the lusts of the flesh. The world's peace, bottom line, the peace that the world provides is at best temporary, very fleeting, and at worst false. Because... There is no true peace apart from the divinely given peace. Erini peace is heart peace. I'm going to define what I talked about, some of those things. Heart peace. It is peace deep within. How many of you know what I'm talking about, have that kind of peace? I hope you all do. It's a, a tranquility of the mind, a composure, a calm, even in the midst of bad circumstances. And situations, it's much more. It goes much deeper than feelings. You know, you could be crying your eyes out and still have that deep peace within. 
it's, it's more than attitude. It's more than feelings. It's more than thought. It's a peace that is given by the Lord. So that means it surpasses understanding. You, don't, you just don't understand where it's coming from. When I was at my mother's funeral, I just had this peace around me that was so abnormal I couldn't explain it. When I've been in some really heavy-duty trials, still there's that inner peace that I know that God's in control. Irini peace is conquest peace. This goes right into this. It's a peace that Jesus speaks about in John 16.33 when he said to his men on this very same night, because this is still part of the upper room discourse, he says to them, These things have I spoken unto you that in me ye might have peace. Irini. In the world, face it, in the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That's conquest peace. Because he's overcome the world, you and I in him can also overcome the world. Irini peace is also assurance peace. It is the peace of unquestionable confidence because it has sure knowledge that one's life is completely in the hands of God. And that Romans 8.28 is true. All things do work together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. How many times do you recall that verse to your minds when you're going through things? And Irini peace is intimacy peace. It is peace of the highest good. You know the word shalom? Everybody knows that word, right? That's what the Jewish people say to each other, coming and going, shalom, shalom, everywhere, shalom. It doesn't just mean, um, like, have a good day kind of peace. You know, shalom is their word for peace. It means, I wish you the highest good. It's the highest good. Um, It is the peace that comes from abiding in close fellowship with the Lord. That kind of peace, which we'll talk about next week when we talk about Jesus being the vine and what are we, the branches, and we need to abide in the vine. Now, did you notice that in verse 27, the Lord spoke of the double peace he alone provides? He spoke of a peace he leaves and he spoke of a peace he gives. Because of his death on our behalf, he leaves believers First of all, with a judicial peace, peace with God. This concerns our relationship with God. It's what Romans 5.1 speaks about when it says that we are justified by faith and we have peace with God. When do we get peace with God? When do we make our peace with God? No longer enemies with him. But friends, at the moment of salvation, we receive our peace with God. That's the first kind of peace. That's the kind of peace he leaves with all believers. The second kind of peace, the one he gives, is an experiential peace, which has to do with our inner tranquility, regardless of circumstances, the one we were just talking about. You remember when Paul was a prisoner in Rome, and he wrote the book of Philippians, and he was able to say, uh, talk about the peace of God, peace of God that passed is all understanding. He could have that kind of peace no matter what circumstances he was in. So there's peace with God that Jesus leaves and then there's the peace of God that he um, that he gives. Did I say leaves for the first one? First one he leaves and the second one he gives. Now the peace Jesus promised to give his men and all future followers of him in verse 27 is the peace of God. 
peace of God. It is a subjective, experiential peace. It is the tranquility in the soul. It's not a passive peace. It is an aggressive, conquering peace because rather than being the victim of circumstances, it takes the circumstances and turns them around to bring something positive out of them. It's a supernatural peace that doesn't make sense to the natural man. It passes his understanding. Peace of God is a peace that he gives to us that we can have, but we have to, we have to take it. Um, you take the circumstances, and because you know God is in control, you use those circumstances for something good. You know that this wasn't just by coincidence, that there's something, a reason, a purpose for this. I remember when we had a three-car pileup in Salisbury on our way to a Christian camp with the children. And um, a man in front of us, well, let's see, how did it start? I don't Yeah, the man in front of us hit the car in front of him, and he stopped so fast that we hit his backside. So the poor man in front of us was hit from the back, the front and the back, and he had just bought the car the day before. Anyway, we were all, you know, I, we're standing out on the side of the road, and I wasn't driving. My husband was driving. <laughs> but it was, and it wasn't his fault, but he, you know. When you hit somebody from the back, you always get blamed. But anyway, we um, we looked at it spiritually for once <laughs> and said, there's a reason for this. And we had our testaments in the car, and we were able to witness to that poor man. Oh, he was a mess. He was so upset. His new car, you know, just like an accordion. And we gave shared with him Bible script. Anyway, to make a long story long, uh, longer, <laughs> that's my specialty is making a long story longer. I like that. Anyway, we kept in touch with that man for years and years, and he would call, and he had a heavy drinking problem. We witnessed to him, but he just couldn't give up his drinking. But anyway, he eventually called and got saved, and oh, it was wonderful. And um, when he died, his daughter called me and told me that he had um, died, and she said, we just cannot thank you guys enough for sharing that Bible and talking to him all these years because she said, I had prayed for my dad for many, many years, and he really made a difference, and he got saved, and he was in church that last year every time the doors were open. I mean, he genuinely got saved. So that's taking the circumstances and turning them and using them for good. Unbelieving people live terribly unpeaceful lives. And you think about it, why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they? They do not really understand who they are. They don't understand why they're here. They don't understand where they're going. So why wouldn't they be anxious? You know what? Unbelieving people have every reason to be anxious and worried and have no peace. If they really knew where they were headed, you know. Um, But contrary to their own belief, their lack of peace has nothing to do with their environment. Or nothing to do with their emotions. Or they need uppers or downers or some kind of tranquilizers or whatever. It has nothing to do with um, any kind of external issue. It has to do with sin. Bottom line, sin. And the fact that they are not right with God. There is no peace for the wicked, it says in Isaiah 48:22. This peace of God is not available or attainable by anyone who is not at first... does not at first have peace with God. You can't have God if, first of all, you have not made your peace with God. The peace of God is Christ's peace. Notice what he said. My peace. My peace I leave unto you. It is his personal peace. Christ. 
It's a peace that he had in the midst of every conceivable trauma and rough circumstances. Circumstance from his temptation by Satan in the wilderness and his rejection and humiliation by man to his crucifixion by the world. You know, there was such a peaceful calm and such a supernatural composure about the Lord, even as he you know, went through all of his six trials and even as he hung there in agony on the cross, that one of the thieves next to him actually got saved. Watching the Lord, he got convicted and saved. You know, understood who this man was. Nobody could have that kind of peace and be concerned about others. You know, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So one man got saved, and a Roman centurion had to confess, surely this is the Son of God. Well, Jesus makes the peace of God available to all believers. Have you made your peace with God? I hope so. Most important peace a a treaty you can ever make. (laughs) Um, If so, then the peace of God that passes all understanding is made available to you. But, as I said before, we have to take hold of it. If the peace of God was automatic, as is peace with God, you know, the moment you get saved, automatically you have peace with God. Well, if the peace of God was also automatic then Jesus would not have given this follow-up commandment in verse 27 when he said, Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You see, it doesn't that sound like the apostles and also you and I? Do let our hearts be troubled? Do we? Do we let our hearts be troubled? And do we let our hearts be afraid? Mm-hmm, we do. So... What does it mean, then, if we have troubled hearts, worried hearts, and fearful hearts? What does it mean? It simply means that we are not totally trusting in Christ. And that's why Paul made a plea to us to allow God's peace to work within us when he said in Colossians 3.15, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. It doesn't come automatically. We have to work on it. We have to remember who's in charge. We have to remember Romans 8.28 and remember the sovereignty of Christ and remember these ten comforting promises. Paul was saying you have the supernatural peace of God. It is available to you, but now let it rule in your hearts. We can have trouble-free hearts. We can have fear-free minds. We can have deep inner, conquering, aggressive, assuring, intimate, heart, erini, peace. How? How can we have it? By getting our focus off the circumstances and onto the Savior. That's, That's it. That's the key. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed focused on thee. That's a good verse to memorize. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Isaiah 26, 3. What about this one? Great peace have they which love the, thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Nothing shall stumble them. You want great peace? Yeah, I don't think anybody in here doesn't. Then, 
you know, you can have it. It's available. What does it say in Philippians 4, 7, and 8? Be anxious for nothing. Nothing means nothing. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God that passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In connection with what the Lord had just been saying, the emphasis of what he said next in verse 28 was in effect, if you would just simply, guys, if you would believe everything I've been saying to you, then all of your worries and all of your heartaches and all of your tears and all of your fears would dispel. Joy would replace your sorrow. I told you I was leaving. But you also heard me say that I would come to you, verse 18, and verse 2, I would come for you. I would manifest myself to you. I'll even give you some post-resurrection appearances, and one day I will come for you. If you love me, instead of sitting here depressed over your own woes, you would be... You know why they were really depressed that he was leaving? Who were they really in love with? themselves. It wasn't because they loved him so much that they were weeping and depressed. Because he told them he was going to his father. They should have been rejoicing for him. You know, when we sometimes when we lose a loved one and we get so down and out we can't function anymore, are we really showing our love for them or our love for ourselves? You know, if they knew the Lord, they're far better off. They wouldn't come back if they had a choice. You're weeping because... What am I going to do without him? You know, it's self-centered. We can't get away from that. We're so self-centered. But think about it. That's what they're doing. They're depressed over their own woes instead of rejoicing with him that he was returning to his father. He was trying to get them to see things from, as he did, from an advanced perspective. He wanted their love for him to be such that they would be happy for him instead of only having pity for themselves. Now, it was really rare for him to speak like this. Um, And so here we do have a glimpse, somewhat of the sadness, that his men aren't loving him the way he would really like them to be loving him. But also we have a glimpse of the joy that is set before him that was ever on his heart. He longed to return to his father in heaven, to the glory that he had with his father before he came into this sinful world. You know, think about this. It could not have been at all easy uh, for a sinless person to be living in a very, very sinful world. I I am a sinful person saved by grace, um, but I have a hard time living in this very sinful world, don't you? It's hard. But can you imagine being totally sinless? No, we can't. (laughs) And living in this sinful world. But, you know, just putting it mildly, it must have been very difficult for him. And to be brilliant, you know, and all-knowing, and to be trying to put up with the minds of these little (laughs) small-minded people with all their little petty issues. Mm. Also, as he had tried to tell them, his return would actually prove to be better for them. You know, stop crying, you guys. Things are going to get better for you. 
They should have been glad for him, and they should have been glad for themselves. They also should have been eager to receive the indwelling comforter that he had been telling them about so that they could begin to do the greater works he had promised they would do once he was gone and they received the comforter. Why didn't one of them interrupt him and ask a question like this? When, Lord, when can we receive this comforter? You said, you know, we get him. When can we? Why didn't somebody interrupt him with that kind of a question? Well, it's because they still weren't grasping things. And they still weren't seeing things from an advanced perspective. Do you try to see life from an advanced perspective? You should. They were still all caught up in the woes of their here and now situation. So they didn't know anything about the peace of God. By the way, when Jesus said, now this is important. Uh, I got five minutes, so this is good. Um, when he said, my father is greater than I, you see that at the end of verse 28? Oh, boy. Do people who deny the deity of Jesus like to take this verse and run with it? Amazing how they take this verse out of John's gospel. John's gospel is the gospel that emphasizes the deity of Christ. And in John's gospel, all over the place are proofs of proofs. Is that right? Proofs? Proofs. Yeah, proofs of um, his deity. You know, he said, my father and I are one. He just told them, I'm in the father, the father's in me. But they take this one verse and they say, look here, Jesus said his father is greater than him. Therefore, he is not deity. But what he's doing here is he's using a contrast and it had to do with his official position in the Godhead not with his essential nature not with his person he's speaking about his relationship within the Trinity his father was not greater than him because his father is any more God than he is his father was greater in that as a man, Jesus had assumed a position of dependence on his father. So he, he willing in his humanity, he willingly made himself of no reputation, even though he was equal with God, right? Isn't that what it says in Philippians 2? He willingly subordinated himself to his father while on earth. But he never, ever ceased to be anything but God. So don't let them take this little verse out of context. Remember what he said, using a contrast, he's talking about his role in the Trinity as far as his humanity was concerned. Well, in verse 29, he told the disciples that he had told them all of these things so that when what he had predicted came to pass, their faith would be strengthened. And was it? Yes, when everything he had predicted here came to pass and they remembered it all, their faith was strengthened. You know, he, he was God. He was omniscient. He knew what he was talking about. And it was strengthened. When the Spirit brought to their remembrance all these comforting words of this last discourse, their faith was bolstered to the sky. Their joy... Joy replaced unspeakable sorrow, or I should say unspeakable joy replaced their sorrow, right? Joy cometh in the morning. I mean, these guys had such joy and such faith and such strength that they were willing to be bludgeoned to death with a club or crucified upside down or put in a, oh, let's see, forget how, that was Isaiah. I almost said put in a log and sawed asunder, but that was Isaiah. But, oh, they had some horrible death, some of them. 
boiled in oil. A lot of the early Christians ter- fed to the lions. But, but these are, po- I mean, the, yes, <laughs> the supernatural peace of God flooded their souls. Well, it was time to leave the upper room. The omniscient Lord could see what nobody else could see. He could see the coming of Satan in the demented soul of Judas Iscariot. He could see the enemy forces gathering together with Judas, with the religious rulers, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the temple guard, the Roman escort. He could see them getting together to come to the upper room to arrest him. He couldn't get arrested in the upper room. Now, that's where Judas brought everybody, we can be sure, that because he knew that's where he had left him. So that's where they brought him. But Jesus had more things to tell his men, so he couldn't be arrested in the upper room. So it's time to leave. They need to begin to make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, where, you know, after Judas took this entourage to the upper room and saw that they weren't there anymore, Judas said, I know, I bet I know where they go, where Jesus would always go to pray. I bet they're in the garden. So then they went on. But by then, Jesus had finished the final discourse. And when he says, look at verse 30, you could, almost, you could spend an entire lesson on just the latter part of verse 30 where Jesus says, For the prince of this world cometh, and he had nothing in me. I have a message at home that a man did just on that, and it just I was, I was just so high in the sky when he got finished with that message. It was amazing. But um, who is he talking about when he says the prince of this world? He, he's, you know, he sees beyond Judas Iscariot. When he says, you know, the prince of this world cometh. He knows who's driving Judas to betray him. He doesn't say, oh, the chief priests and scribes are coming. He doesn't say the temple guard or the Roman escort are coming, does he? He knows, but just like what's going on over now in, e- in Egypt and in the Middle East and the whole situation and in Iran. You know who's behind it? Satan, the prince of this world. He says, for the prince of this world cometh, and these are the great words, and he hath nothing in me. You know what that means? He is assuring his men ahead of time that the issue of the approaching conflict between him, the son of God, and Satan, the greatest foe God has ever had, was not to be left in doubt. There was no sin in his life, in Christ's life, that would allow Satan a victory. Not even a weak area in his life that Satan could use to his advantage. There was to be no doubt who was going to be the conqueror in the coming battle on the cross. And who was the victor to be? Jesus. Prince of this world cometh, and he hath nothing in me. I love that. Well, he was through with his comfort section of his last message to his men before his death, so it was time to leave. They had a divine appointment to keep, so it was time to get up and get going. And so what does he say to his men? Arise, let us go hence. Father, thank you for this time together with sisters in Christ who love you and who show that love by obeying you and doing their homework. And Father, thank you that um, we had this opportunity to open your word and hear again the comforting promises that you have given to us. We thank you, Lord, that you that Satan has nothing in you 
that you were perfectly sinless and that when you went to that cross, you knew the victory would be yours, and it was. And through you, we too can be conquerors. And Father, as we think of that, help us to be conquerors over our circumstances, to take hold of that peace of God that you provide for us, that you give to us, a peace that passes all understanding. Help us to get our eyes off the circumstances, off our troubles and woes, and to focus on you. You are sovereign. You are in control. All things do work together for our good and for your glory. May we remember that. May we remember all of these truths, Lord. And when we get under, may we remember. And um, we just let not our hearts be troubled and neither let them be afraid. We love you, Jesus. And may we continue to show our love for you by using what we learn here to, to share with others and to help them when they're struggling. Lord, now I just ask that you would go with every woman. Thank you for her patience. Bless her this week. Help, help her to be salt and light to everyone she comes into contact with, especially these young mothers as they uh, nurture their young children. May every young person that is affiliated with any of us here come to know you, Lord, as their Savior, because we know that they're going to grow up in a very, very wicked world if you don't come soon. But saying that, we also say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.